welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program for caregivers' practical tips to cope with your loved one's bladder cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care, and we are delighted to be working together on this program today. And indeed, today's program is supported by Seattle Genetics and a charitable contribution from Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, and we really want to thank them for their support. Now, working together with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and also with all of your interest in the program today and all of our other collaborating organizations, because this is truly a, a number of cancer organizations are also collaborating to help spread the word about the program and your interest, we have on the program today over, 200, over 214 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also happen to have on today's program international participants from Bahrain, Canada, China, Egypt, Russia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And it's a real credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to learn more about the issues that caregivers confront, practical tips to cope with your loved one's bladder cancer. And this is part two of Life with Bladder Cancer. Now, we have great speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Robert Svatek, and Dr. Svatek is Professor, Acting Chair, Department of Urology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson. And Dr. Svatek will be addressing an overview of bladder cancer in the context of COVID-19, helping to manage your loved one's bladder cancer treatment, adherence and follow-up care, the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Svatek. Hi, um, this is Robert Svatek. Thank you for the kind introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to talk for, I want to start by, by saying that I'm not an expert in infectious disease and COVID. I am an expert in bladder cancer. Um, I, but I do want to speak about COVID briefly so that we can put this into context. Now, we know uh, COVID-19, which is also uh, called SARS-CoV-2, and SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. This is coronavirus 2, and this marks the emergence of the third, really the third large-scale epidemic related to coronavirus. You'll remember there was a one in 2002 um, where 8,000 people from 30 different countries were infected, and about 770 uh, died worldwide. Now, this particular uh, spread of SARS-CoV-2 has been rapid, with over 5.6 million confirmed cases globally and more than 350,000 deaths as of today. The severity of this disease can range from uh, asymptomatic, completely asymptomatic, to acute resp respiratory distress syndrome, what we call ARDS. 
and that requires aggressive measures, often mechanical ventilation, um, and many patients don't survive. The current management strategies for this disease are largely supportive, and what we mean by that is supporting breathing um, and, and protective measures trying to prevent um, uh, further transmission of the virus. As of right now, there are no effective um, FDA-approved vaccines or therapies um, for this illness, but there are lots of research underway. Um, what is the relationship between COVID and cancer? There was an article published in Lancet Oncology that got a lot of press. It suggested that there was a higher incidence of COVID in cancer patients and that cancer patients infected with COVID did worse. We're going to return to that article in just a moment, but before we do so, I need to mention a little bit more regarding SARS-CoV-2. So one of the important points with SARS-CoV-2 is how it interacts with us. And if it gets into our body, it um, needs to get into the cell in order for it to to uh, survive and in order for it to multiply. It has to get inside the cell. And the way that it does that is through binding to a specific type of protein, which we call angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2. Now, that protein, ACE2, is important. This is the key factor for the virus to become infectious. And it's basically a receptor, which means it's a, a, a protein that actually allows the virus to get into the cell. Um, this molecule, ACE2, is, is, is broadly expressed in lots of different tissues in our body, but it's particularly prominent in the lung epithelial cells. And that's why the lungs is one of the primary targets of this virus. Now, you can imagine that people have different amounts of this receptor, this ACE2, and different tissues have different amounts. So those, the quantity of those ACE2 receptors does influence how, uh, how infectious the virus will be in that particular host. Once the virus gains entry into the cell, what happens then is your immune system triggers a large release of molecules called cytokines as it's trying to recruit other immune cells to fight the virus. And this cytokine response tends to be one of the detrimental or harmful responses that can happen. It's almost as if our body's reacting too much and we have to then deal with the uh, consequences of those large amount of cytokine responses. Now, the... Um, Clinical outcomes for people that are infected with COVID are certainly dependent on on several things, but the, the, the key things are the amount of that ACE2 expression. So if you have higher ACE2 expression, it, it, it pretends that you might do worse because the virus has more access to more cells. The older the individual, um, they have worse outcomes. As, as we know, this, this virus is particularly problematic for, for people based on age. And that may be partly because ACE2 increases as you get older. And also comorbidities. And what we mean by comorbidities is other illnesses. So persons that have other medical conditions tend to not fare as well as those that are healthy. So back to the study that was published in Lancet Oncology. This was um, a study 
that was reported based on about 2,000 cases in the Wuhan province in China. And they found in their report a higher proportion of COVID infections in cancer patients. So, for example, the infection rate was about 1% in the cancer patients, but only 0.3% in the general population. And that created a lot of um, publicity and attention um, because of that publication. So I want to say that there may be some truth to that, but we have to think, we have to know the the details, and the details are important here. Um, Part of the issue is that um, it's a very small sample size, a very low number of patients. And the the types of cancers that they looked at were really variable. Um, Some patients had cancer 16 years ago, and they were completely cured of disease. Um, and they, uh, uh, so very, very different types of cancer in a very heterogeneous population. Most epidemiologists think that this data is rather weak in terms of, of how uh, uh, one would go about trying to look at that association. But the most important thing was that, as we know, cancer is increased as we get older. So age and cancer are are directly related. And furthermore, um, the, the the risk factors for developing some types of cancer, especially lung cancer, is tobacco use and smoking, which also affect the prognosis for people that are co- that are infected with COVID. And so it's difficult because of that um, relationship between smoking and tobacco use, which increases their risk for um uh, 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 COVID-related complications. The, co- the tobacco and smoking increase the number of ACE2 receptors, and they also play a role in uh, development of cancer, particularly in lung cancer and bladder cancer. So that's the context by which we're talking about bladder cancer. And bladder cancer is a disease of older patients. Okay, There are very few patients less than the age of 40 that get bladder cancer. The median age of diagnosis is 68. So age and bladder cancer are tightly associated, as well as environmental exposures, and that is namely um, tobacco use or smoking use. But other environmental exposures are linked to bladder cancer as well. And so the things that contribute to getting bladder cancer can also contribute to having um more problems if you were to get infected with COVID and less chance or let's say a worse prognosis if you were to get infected with COVID. Now, the clinical manifestations of COVID are similar in cancer patients and non-cancer patients. So the symptoms would be the same. Fever, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, um, in rare cases, diarrhea and vomiting, and in some cases, loss of taste. These symptoms are the same whether it's a cancer patient or not. Um, the can- bladder cancer comes in lots of shapes and sizes. It's it's a only defined only the only thing that links bladder cancer t- together through all the patients is the location of the organ. But in many ways, the disease uh, is very different. So there are what we call non-muscle invasive bladder cancers, or what we used to be called superficial. And in those cases, the bladder is often conserved and maintained, and the cancer is treated with some type of medicine that's instilled into the bladder. There's 
more advanced cases where the bladder has to be removed or the or you have to radiate the bladder in order to prevent it from spreading further. And then there's more advanced cases where the cancer has spread beyond the bladder to the lungs, the liver, or the lymph nodes. And therapy is gener- is is geared more toward treating the whole body as opposed to targeting one organ. And these are really different in terms of how we manage them and how we uh, uh, treat them. So how do we help our loved ones to manage their bladder cancer treatment? In this, especially in this era, um, but, but it's always true with bladder cancer that surveillance and repeated visits are very um, important. Whether you're in the early spectrum of the disease or the late spectrum, we need to see you in, in the clinic or at least virtually because we need to make certain that the cancer hasn't returned if it's been treated or it hasn't progressed if you're undergoing treatment. So those follow-up visits, as, as um, frequent as they are, are very important. And even if it has to be a telephone call, um, it's important that we try to make each of those follow-up visits. Virtual visits in telemedicine are great, and they enable a lot that can be done. But in some cases, uh, an evaluation of the bladder with a scope, what we call cystoscopy, is critical. So adherence to the follow-up regimen is the most important thing that you can do to help um, the patient in this time, and generally in, in, in all time with bladder cancer, adhering to their, their treatment schedule and adhering to their, their, uh, their surveillance schedule. The next thing is communicating with the healthcare team. Um, the, the benefits that we have seen with this new environment is improved communication. So we now have better access to our patients. Our patients have better access to us. And communicating is, is, is critical. So with, and what, I'm, what do I mean by communicating? I mean making sure that the, the provider knows what the, what's going on with you and making sure that you understand what's going on from the provider's perspective. So if you had a CT scan done last week, has anyone communicated to you the results? Just shoot a, an, uh, maybe shoot a message to your provider saying, hey, I'd like to get follow-up on the results of my CT scan or my cytology. Or I'm not sure if my treatment is next Tuesday or the Tuesday after. I'll just shoot a message and get feedback to make sure I know the timing so that I don't come early or late. With the COVID situation, we're having to tightly manage how patients come to the clinic and limit the amount of exposure and time patients are in the clinic. So getting your time and your appointment as precise as possible is very important. And we can improve that by, by communicating well with each other. So at, I, I'm going to stop there, and I look forward to some questions as uh, time permits later on. Thank you for the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Svetik. That was really an outstanding presentation of very interesting um, information um, and also very helpful um, for the caregivers to understand um, some of the things that their important role here as well. So, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Aaron Kent. Uh, Dr. Kent is Associate Professor at the University of Carolina, Chapel Hill, UNC, Department of Health Policy and Management, Gillings School of Public Health, full member UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Kent will be addressing what research tells us about caregiving, long-distance caregiving, and stresses, challenges, and rewards of caregiving. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kent. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's really an honor to be invited by Cancer Care and to be speaking with you all today on this important topic, really oriented towards caregivers and how to help uh, your loved one and how to help cope with um, the bladder cancer experience. And I want to first um, just emphasize that I am a researcher um, and in the Gilling School of Public Health here at UNC Chapel Hill, most of my work has been on cancer patient outcomes including a big focus on um, health-related quality of life and symptoms, the impact that the cancer has had on families, and this domain of cancer caregiving, which we're going to talk about today. I am not, however, a clinician, and so I do not have experience in providing direct medical or, or psychosocial care. My role today instead is to tell you about what research tells us about being a family caregiver for someone with cancer. Um, and I just want to also start by saying that a, a cancer patient survey led by Cancer Care in 2015 found that the impact that cancer can have on a family was the number one concern for cancer patients, indicating how critically important it is that we pay attention to cancer patients' families in addition to patients themselves. So what do I mean by caregivers? So we need to start by our terms and really defining what we mean by our terms. So I mean... Um, that people who are helping to support a person with cancer. So these people might be spouses, partners, children. They could also include other relatives, friends, neighbors, or coworkers. So we use the term family caregiver, but we need family in a very general and relative sense. Um, caregivers are people who help their care recipient or their, their patient or their loved one meet their day-to-day -day needs. Um, what we often <clears throat> refer to as activities of daily living. So these include basic tasks um, that are fundamental for, for, for life, so things like feeding, dressing, bathing, and moving around. They don't necessarily have to include those assistance with those basic tasks. They can also include what we call sometimes instrumental tasks, like shopping, paying bills, and socializing. Um, tasks that caregivers help with can also include medical or nursing tasks, things like administering and organizing medication, changing bandages, and helping um, with medical devices like infusion cords and catheters. Caregivers also help by accompanying their loved ones to medical appointments, communicate, um, and right now that is more challenging, but they can still help with transportation and also, of course, accompany um, with virtual visits, um, communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, um, which our last speaker spoke, spoke about, and it can be a very important role for caregivers to play. And also advocating for services. Sometimes patients, sometimes we all have struggles sort of advocating for ourselves. So caregivers can really be um, a strong force in helping to advocate for their, for their loved ones. However, many people might not refer to themselves as a caregiver. Um, I often say caregivers um, are as caregivers do um, because this is not a term that resonates with everybody. And it is helpful, though, to use this term um, in research and in healthcare providers so that we can sort of refer to um, a body of people that are actually performing these roles um, and to help recognize all of the critically important ways in which um, people are helping support a loved one with a serious health problem. <clears throat> so it is difficult to tell how many people are serving in this role of caregiver at a given time in the U.S especially specifically for um, patients with bladder cancer or any specific type of cancer. And that's partly because caregivers um, are not part of any sort of natural, national registry, um, and caregivers are helping do many, many things, and they're helping support loved ones with multiple health problems um, or sometimes what we call chronic conditions. 
<clears throat> the National Alliance for Caregiving, however, conducts a survey of caregivers nationwide once about every five years, and their most recent report is now out. It was actually published um, a few days ago, and their report estimates that approximately 53 million adults are serving as a caregiver for a loved one with a serious medical condition. So um, it's safe to say that there are thousands of people who are going to be fitting the role of caregiving for someone with cancer, um, including bladder cancer, and thousands more to come. Rosalind Carter, who's a former first lady and caregiving champion, has been quoted as saying, there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who currently are caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. And we know that there are many challenging aspects of being a caregiver, especially for those who are providing um, care for several hours per week or helping out with several of those activities of daily living that I mentioned, things that are very fundamental to life, so feeding, bathing, dressing, et cetera. Um, the National Institute of Caregiving also found that um, cancer caregivers are tending to spend more time per week providing care. So their last estimate was about 32 hours per week, um, as opposed to those who are caring for um, um, individuals with other health problems. Um, that, re that report on cancer caregiving that they put out um, suggested that caregiving for cancer patients tends to be more episodic and not as long-lasting, um, but also more intense than caregiving for, for individuals with other health conditions. Not everyone reports that they felt like they had a choice in taking on this responsibility. Um, obligation and sense of purpose can certainly go hand in hand, but we do know that perceiving having no choice in the matter can lead to additional stress and strain for caregivers. So what that means for someone who is considering becoming a caregiver is that choice matters and that taking on this kind of role needs to be um, viewed through the lens of adjustment. So if someone is becoming a caregiver, it is important to take time to process what's happening and what that might mean for um, a caregiver's life and routines and schedule. So setting and revisiting goals is crucial. And setting and doing that in the context with um, a patient is really important. Caregiving does not have to be nor should it be a singular endeavor. There are ways to marshal support from additional family members and friends. And there are tools to help organize requests, tasks, schedules, and expectations. So if someone is becoming a caregiver, and especially in that setting of sort of feeling an, an obligation, this is the time to activate your village. It's important to be able to communicate with a healthcare team that, 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 that there is a transition to becoming a caregiver. Um, I was also asked to address what it might be like to, care, to be a caregiver at a distance of caregiving. And this is a topic near and dear to my own heart as I'm currently supporting my mother who lives across the country and is managing some health problems. So I know all too well that distance can be challenging in helping us support our loved ones, whatever the health problems that they might have are. But there are many ways um, to care for a loved one with cancer from afar. Some of these strategies can rely on technology. And te technology by itself can sometimes seem overwhelming and daunting, but there are ways to, to get help even at a distance. Tools like video conferencing through platforms like Skype or FaceTime can be really helpful in terms of attending visits or even checking in on a loved one, taking pictures and texting, or emailing them with some medicines can help answer questions. 
setting up supportive services, whether uh, formal and unpaid or informal, can um, things like helping with um, provide companionship or bring over meals or help with house or yard. There are, there are digital and online tools to help caregivers organize care, sites like CaringBridge, lots of helping hands where a person can create a list of tasks, schedules and requests for help, emailing out to their own social network, and people can sign up to things like, um, like meal delivery, picking up kids from activities, yard work, taking someone to and from an appointment, et cetera. And these sites, and, and, there, and there are others out there as well, but they can help organize assistance so that the help is clearly communicated and responded to. And it can also, they can also help take out that feeling of, um, of burden for caregivers. Um, so, so one way that um, a, a sort of a secondary caregiver can really help a primary caregiver is sort of taking on that role, saying, we want to sort of marshal support around this primary caregiver. So I, um, we're going to go ahead and set up a task help system to help that person so that the primary caregiver doesn't necessarily feel like they are burdening their social network. Um, there, are, there are a number of, I was also to talk about a number of stresses, challenges, but also rewards of caregiving. And I actually want to start with the rewards because research shows us that there are benefits to becoming a caregiver. There are positive aspects, um, certainly. Um, one study identified domains of benefit finding among cancer caregivers, and these included, um, and are certainly not limited to, but the, the way that this study laid them out was in the following way. So acceptance, um, helping to take things as they come, helping to sort of increase one's own sort of tolerance and resilience for life. Empathy, um, um, increasing one's own uh, awareness and concern for others, for other human beings appreciation or gratitude, so being more aware of the love and support from other people. Just family in general, bringing family closer together around a common goal of helping a loved one with cancer. Uh, positive self-view, helping to become stronger in one's own eyes and cope more effectively um, in times of and hard times. Um, reprioritization, so helping to identify truer friends, a deeper sense of purpose. And all of these positive aspects can come out of caregiving for a loved one with bladder cancer. And it's important to also recognize the challenging aspect. I already mentioned some of them, um, and that the fact that, care, that cancer caregivers are um, already spending um, typically more hours per week providing care than for those with other chronic conditions. Um, we know that, um, that several caregivers report performing complex medical and nursing tasks without prior training and preparation, and that really goes to say how important it can be and how um, much help one can, can really find by communicating with a healthcare team. Um, in addition, um, many cancer caregivers report feeling high levels of emotional stress, and, and in the cancer context, even higher than, than in other caregiving contexts, as well as financial strain. Um, we know that cancer caregivers can face um, sleep disturbance, and um, poor psychological outcomes like depression and anxiety. We know that caregivers often neglect their own self-care in service of caring for their loved ones, and they may not be, they both may not be um, asking about their own healthcare needs, but they also might not be asked enough about their healthcare needs, and this is a critical area for both research and intervention development, and, and really speaks to, I think, a cultural change needed in, in clinical practice. 
And although these findings may seem negative, um, I'm providing these to you to help normalize feelings um, that you might have about the stress of caregiving. It's not stressful or positive, it's often both, sometimes at the same time and sometimes at different times. So it's normal to feel like it's hard and it's important to reach out for help. And social support is critical. So support should be thought about in a multi-dimensional way along the lines of three main major types of social support. So the first is informational support, and that can be helping to find someone information, data about cancer treatment options, et cetera. And this is something that can definitely be more easily done with distance. Um, a second kind of social support is instrumental support, and this is, um, goes back to that, that helping with activities of daily living, so things like preparing meals, providing transportation, and that can actually be provided by a network of people that can help, for example, with a meal train. Um, instrumental support is very critical. Um, but then finally, emotional support, so providing a listening ear, companionship, and affection. All three of these kinds of social support are fundamental and be can benefit both patients and caregivers. And in, a, and in a situation where there's a network of cares, the patient at the center can be the, the really the best, um, most optimal situation. So it's not uncommon for caregivers to try to take on the role of sort of moving through and doing what needs to be done. And these approaches in particular have been looked at um, in male caregivers. That's often a, a sort of a, a strategy that male caregivers um, often sort of take on. Um, not just not just men, but but that tends to be um, something that we find um, among men more commonly. Um, guilt is also another emotion that some caregivers face. Um, and the problem is, though, that that without really assessing um, and appraising one's own feelings, caregivers can experience sort of really um, a, sort of a repressed sense of their own um, needs. And that can, that can lead to lower quality of life or what is sometimes termed suffering in silence. So fostering feelings of hope, managing feelings of guilt, really becoming um, good at reaching out and communicating needs is critically important. In addition, prioritizing self-care, so sleep, exercise, and healthy eating can be also critically important to coping with the stresses of caregiving. Meditation and other kinds of mindfulness practice have also been known to help caregivers, and they should be um, explored as strategies to help with the stresses of caregiving. So with that, um, I, I don't want to take too much more time from the other speakers. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I'll go ahead and hand it now back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was really outstanding, and as always, and so informative about, um, you know, what it, what what research tells us about caregiving, but also um, what Rosalie Carter said about that in, in some respects, everyone at some point in their life will either need a caregiver, be a caregiver, all those different roles. And it's important to keep that in mind um, with great humility that indeed, um, as we listen to your presentation, to recognize that if you're not currently a caregiver, you may be one, you may need one. And so to some extent, it really opens up so much more for all of us to, as we hear your remarks. So thank you so much for that excellent presentation. Um, and our next presenter is Ms. Sharon Flynn. Ms. Flynn is a nurse practitioner, nursing research and translational science, clinical center nursing department, National Institutes of Health, clinical research center. And Ms. Flynn um, is a frequent presenter on our programs and she's going to be addressing managing family, friends, partners, and traditions 
coping with holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, and special occasions, remembering to take care of yourself, so self-care and stress management tips, and stay tuned for that because she really does a wonderful presentation on that. And it's really my great privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Lynn. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and to our wonderful panel of speakers. It's an honor to be here with you today, and I would also like to take this opportunity to warmly welcome all of our participants who are on the call. Whether you're a caregiver or a person living with bladder cancer, you recognize the, importance, the important role caregivers play in your loved one's cancer management, and I applaud you for finding out more information on this important topic. So I'm going to share with you some tips on managing friends and family members, celebrating holidays and special occasions, and then I'm going to conclude with um, a, a quick meditation. So let's first talk about friends and family members. They want to help you, but often they're not sure exactly what you need. Um, they're relying on you to tell them what you need. So I first recommend to my patients and their caregivers to start brainstorming. Create a list of everything that you do um, in a day during or in a week. Um, are there items when you're looking at this list that maybe someone else can do? And so some of those tasks that other people, um, friends and family might be able to help you out with or neighbors include mowing the lawn, running errands such as going to the grocery store or to the pharmacy, driving to and from doctor's appointments, taking care of your pets, um, helping with homework now that children are um, being taught online. This is a, a very important um, issue out there that um, a lot of caregivers need help with. Um, sometimes it's filling the car up with gas or having it, uh, taking it in for regular maintenance, um, and also updating social media, um, whether that's email or sites like Dr. Kent mentioned, like CaringBridge, to update other family members um, that may not um, be in day-to-day -day contact. And so which of these tasks are you comfortable with asking for assistance? In American culture, we like to think that we can do everything by ourselves and that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And this simply is not true. No one, no matter where they live in the world, can do everything by themselves. And as a caregiver, don't ask just once, but repeatedly ask for help. Give yourself permission to ask and accept help. If you're feeling uneasy or unsure about asking for help, remember that you can repay your neighbor or family members at a later time. Right now, focus on you and what will help you most right now. Some caregivers have meals delivered a couple times a week. They find this helpful. Um, but I don't want you to be shy about telling people that are preparing meals for you if you or your loved ones have food allergies, or food aversions, um, foods that you like and you don't like, and even with dishes you've had in the past week. Um, no one wants to be the person uh, preparing a meal and dropping it off at your house to realize that you have three lasagnas um, already delivered earlier in the week. I would suggest having an online sign-up um, management system to help manage meals and communicate those food allergies or aversions. Um, and you can deputize someone 
uh, a family member or a friend to act as a meal coordinator, to communicate this information, or to run that online list. And moving on to holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, special occasions, um, they're a little bit different now that we're in the age of COVID-19. Um, and I think we've all realized that we're going to have to find new and creative ways to celebrate these milestones um, and that there's no right way to celebrate. Um, we may have to modify the celebration to have it online um, through virtual communities to incorporate everyone. So think about if your summer holiday or your birthday um, occurred during the summer and you might go swimming or you might play a football game in the backyard, if that was part of your tradition, it may be hard to think of celebrating um, that birthday or special occasion without performing certain traditions. And now is the time to start a new tradition. Everybody is creating new traditions to celebrate these milestones. And some alternatives might be, um, again, having that um, virtual uh, phone call, conference call with family members where you share favorite stories. Um, maybe one person um, has a cake and you have a virtual blowing out of the candles. Um, focus on what is most important for your loved one and how to incorporate that love and support of the family members and friends into that holiday celebration. And you can start by respecting your loved one's um, decision regarding how to celebrate. Um, as we know, their experience is unique to them and also to you as the caregiver. And maybe um, either you or your um, loved one is, is having too many phone calls. And so maybe a huge conference call might be too much right now. Maybe just having one person um, spaced out every other day might be a more manageable. Ask your loved one about what their feelings are and how they would like to celebrate. And reflect upon what that occasion means um, to both of you so that you can create lasting memories filled with love and compassion. And for friends and family, communicating what pressures that you're under um, in your typical day. They may not realize everything that's going on in your day. Help them to understand by telling them what you need and what they can um, help with. It can be very hard um, to ask and receive help, but it's important to remember that others are grateful for the opportunity to do something for you. Just as I'm sure in the past you've done things for other um, members of your family and friends and neighborhood. Using technology, um, as we've said a couple times, can help manage um, some of these, um, uh, having a, a dedicated spokesperson uh, to help manage these sites can be helpful. Um, I faced a serious health crisis not that long ago, and I found the number of phone calls and emails and requests just overwhelming, um, not only for myself, but also for my husband. And so I was fortunate enough to have a spokesperson who's a, a very dear friend of mine, um, who is not my caregiver, um, kind of managed that. She sent out emails, um, she took in phone calls and kind of prioritized things so that my husband could focus on taking care of me and getting us through this health crisis. Um, and she was kind of in charge for keeping everybody else informed and that was a huge relief. Definitely ask your healthcare provider about um, any specific medical concerns that might impact your ability to celebrate. 
your medical team can suggest ways that your loved one can have more can more fully participate in that celebration whether they're at home or whether they're in the hospital and if you have certain traditions around your celebration um, that might include fasting or eating meals at designated times be sure to let your healthcare provider know this it might not be safe for you to fast while you're receiving treatment for your bladder cancer or sometimes some of the other conditions that you might have, such as diabetes or high blood pressure, might impact um, fully celebrating um, that holiday with certain foods or the timing of when you eat. Your healthcare team is happy to work with you so that you can participate in a manner that is safe. And my final tip is to stay positive and find inspiration. Um, being a caregiver is a very tough job. And you may have question why cancer came into your lives. Staying positive and finding inspiration can make a big difference. So I suggest reading or listening to uplifting materials. Um, this may include turning off the news for a period of time um, or limiting the type of media that you're ingesting. You could try praying or meditation. Since COVID-19, many of the yoga and meditation instructors have gone online and are offering free sessions. And so please take advantage of this opportunity. I've been shopping um, different instructors to try and find um, ones that I like that um, I want to continue with. And so I, I offer that to you too. And at times when um, caregivers feel tired or overwhelmed, Maybe having a couple inspirational pictures or words um, at designated places, either at your bedside or maybe in the kitchen, um, can help, help you find inspiration to, to carry on. And I have a, a quote here from Emery Austin um, that I like. And he said, some days there won't be a song in your heart, but sing anyway. So I encourage you, maybe a, finding a song and playing it um, will lift your spirits, maybe singing along, dancing along, getting your loved one to dance along um, can help raise your spirits. And so this leads into some self-care um, tips that I have for you um, to manage the stress of caregiving. And first, it's set, a, set aside time for yourself. Self-care is not selfish. It's a necessity when you're providing care. And this doesn't mean self-care. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to go to the grocery store and do the week's worth of shopping or waiting in line for a prescription. I want to encourage you to really set aside time for yourself to go for a walk, maybe catch up with friends and go for a walk, play your favorite song and dance along. Maybe there's a particular hobby that, that you have, um, working on that hobby to help reduce stress reading a book, watching a movie, um, and giving yourself permission to smile, to laugh, and to have fun. Um, you as the caregiver are important, and we want you to continue to laugh and smile and have fun. And you must take care of yourself with the same intensity that you're caring for your loved one. And that starts with the basics of making sure that you're getting enough sleep at night that you're getting some form of exercise. Um, in the time of COVID, um, there, we've been um, hearing just anecdotally about people, the number of steps that people are taking in a day. And when they're not 
um, going to the office or going into a hospital, um, their, their steps have been reduced. And so keep an eye on that. Make sure that you're striving for those 10,000 steps a day. And then in addition to sleep and exercise, the type of food um, that you're eating. Make sure that your diet um, is um, filled with fruits and vegetables and water. Um, it's easy to forget these things when you're focusing on someone else. And some self-care tips also include keeping up with your own doctor appointments. Taking care of someone with cancer doesn't mean that you get a free pass to not take care of your own medical needs or a pass to ignore them um, and only focus on your loved one's needs. Um, we want you to make sure that you're getting your regular medical checkups and that you're on track with your medications and getting refills, recommended cancer screenings such as mammograms and colonoscopies. COVID-19 doesn't mean that we get a year off from cancer screenings and taking our own medications. It means that we need to also switch to telehealth visits um, and reschedule cancer screening appointments for later in the year. Some other self-care tips include keeping a journal or finding some outlet for your feelings. Now, for some people, a, a journal um, is a paper and pen. For other people, it could be an electronic journal on your laptop tablet or phone. It's a great way to process your feelings. Maybe you're worried that the chemotherapy treatment isn't working or you're worried about your current financial status. A journal can help you organize these feelings um, and then um, be prepared to, or help prepare you to talk to someone um, to, um, to talk about your feelings more. And if a journal isn't for you, maybe recording your emotions through photography, maybe drawing or painting, knitting, gardening, um, or creating music is a way that you express your feelings. Or finding that close friend and socially distancing while you're um, walking around your neighborhood. Um, it's helpful to look into counseling services. Um, everyone needs someone to talk to. And this is especially important when you're going through a stressful period of your life. Some caregivers feel that they need to protect or shield their loved ones from stress, anxiety, worry, or a sense of doom. And talking to a professional counselor, such as, a, as the social work team at Cancer Care, can help relieve some of the stress of caregiving. Give yourself permission to talk about your individual needs, get your questions answered, so that you're feeling emotionally fit um, while you're caregiving. And there are also support groups. Um, support groups um, right now are, are not taking um, place, at least on the east coast of the United States where I am in Maryland, face-to-face. -face. They've gone online. Um, some of them are through virtual platforms. Some of them are through um, postings online. Most hospitals have support groups. Um, so ask your medical team. And I know that Dr. Messner will be talking about the innovative ways that cancer care is offering support groups and services for you and for your loved one. And, and as I um, am concluding, are you feeling depressed? Are you still in a shape? state of shock from the cancer diagnosis, we know that this can affect the caregiving experience. One of you might be tempted to skip your dose of medication or to skip a medical appointment um, or even think about 
skipping an entire treatment because you're thinking that it doesn't matter. Well, I want you to hear this, that you matter. You are worth fighting for. Support is there for you, and all you have to do is reach out for it. And so finally, I'd like to perform a quick breathing exercise. So if you're not already sitting down, I'm going to have you take a seat in a chair with your feet on the floor and your hands in a relaxed position on your lap. If this isn't comfortable for you, then find a position that is comfortable. And I want you to think of a location that makes you happy. This could be at the beach. This could be standing next to a mountain. Maybe you're sitting on a swing hanging from a tree. Or maybe you're at a park overlooking a lake. I want you to close your eyes and think of this happy location. I want you to imagine the vivid colors where you are. What sounds do you hear? Are there birds chirping in the background? Are there waves crashing on the beach? Is there an ice cream truck ringing a bell? Can you feel the sunlight on your skin? Is there a gentle breeze? And now we're going to take a series of deep breaths. And so I'm going to walk you through this first. I'm going to have you take a deep breath in. We're going to hold it, and then we're going to blow it out. But here's the trick. I'm going to have you put a big smile on your face. And on the, um, we're going to take a deep breath in, smiling. And we're going to hold it for as long as you can or what's comfortable. And you're going to blow it out. And as you're blowing it out with a smile on your face, all of your stress and worry is leaving you, and you're only left with calm. And we're going to do that two more times. So take a deep breath in and hold it and blow it out, just leaving you with peace and calm. And last time, we're going to take an Big inhale while we're smiling and hold that breath, thinking of that inspirational place where you are, and you're going to blow it out with a smile on your face, bringing you calm and relaxation. I want you to lean into that experience of being calm. You can do this simple breathing exercise anytime, anywhere. You don't have to be sitting down or with your eyes closed. You can do it in the grocery store. And you can open your eyes. And in conclusion, caregivers and patients, you are not alone. There are networks like Cancer Care to support both the caregiver and the patient through this often very difficult journey. Today's conference is just one of the many resources available to you. Remember, you can do this. Thank you for inviting me on this important call today. I wish you all the very best and look forward to your questions and caregiving tips you have to share with the group on this call. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Ms. Flynn. That was really extraordinary and what a wonderful way to conclude with that wonderful breathing exercise and just all your thoughts are just, I think people will carry them around and will support and especially your message, we can do this. So this is really important. So thank you. Thank you so much. 
Um, and our next speaker is Morgan Powell, and Ms. Powell is an Education and Outreach Manager for Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, and she will be describing the free programs of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. And I'm going to now turn this program over to my esteemed co colleague, Ms. Powell. Hi, thank you so much for having me today, and I wanted to thank all the speakers and participants on this call. Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network is a nonprofit organization that really works to support bladder cancer patients and their caregivers. We find that most of the people that come to us are caregivers looking for information as their loved one was newly diagnosed. And so we try and fill that need by offering um, a program that's called Survivor to Survivor, where it matches up newly diagnosed patients or patients that are going through new or different treatments than maybe they went through before with patients that have already had those treatments. And it really provides them a sense of, uh, how do I say, not aloneness, that, that they're not alone, that they have somebody else in the world that's been through this. Because as we all know, cancer can be kind of lonely. And so that is one of the programs that we offer. We also offer our online <clears throat> platform with Inspire, who is one of our partners. And that one is a similar support type community, but you can go there at your own leisure, whatever time of day, maybe you can't sleep. And so at 2 a.m., that's when you wanted to visit and see what kind of support you could find or information you could find from others in the bladder cancer community. We also offer our insight webinars, which are meant to be for patients, for their loved ones, for the average person to explain the different topics in bladder cancer. We're also working on expanding our specific caregiver programs because we recognize that the caregivers are sometimes the lifeboat that keeps the cancer patient going. They take them to the appointments, they make sure that they're fed nutritious foods, that they have the emotional support they have. So that's something that Beacon is working on and we hope to have more programs in the future. With that, I will well, turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Powell. That was really excellent and really uh, just a wonderful resource for everyone. And remember, it's the only bladder cancer advocate network out there, so it's the only uh, actually, a nonprofit that really focuses specifically on bladder cancer, so a great resource for all of you. And um, we're going to take questions in just a minute, but I'm going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to take a few of your questions um, before we conclude the program. So I'd like to describe, I'm Carolyn Mester, I am an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education here at Cancer Care. And I want to describe for you some of our services and programs at Cancer Care. Uh, provides. So we have a host of a really comprehensive network of services that we do offer and uh, basically a way that many of you access our services is to contact our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 and that's a great way to reach us. And for our international participants or people who would prefer to go to our website, it's www.cancercare.org. The comprehensive network of services really always starts with your talking with a call with some connection with one of our oncology social workers, whether it be on the web or online or actually on the telephone. 
And um, many of you contacted us for both practical and financial assistance. Um, the financial assistance is for people in the U.S. All the other services are available. We will help you to connect up wherever you are in the world with resources where you are. Um, but nevertheless, um, we actually uh, do also offer uh, support groups and um, these type of education programs and a chance to just talk with one of our oncology social workers. And uh, so the, the best, best way to find about all the different services we offer is to contact us. And, and of course, uh, so you can do that um, by contacting us. And at the end of this program, um, within about, well, probably two days, so probably um, it will be um, either Friday or, mo or Monday, you'll be getting from us an evaluation form. And we definitely like your feedback on the program. We also will include um, any resource or any website or, or any telephone number we offered for you so that you can have those at your disposal, and even some that we haven't yet mentioned that just we know are great resources for you. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, so, um, Norma, uh, if you could explain to me how to queue up for questions, and uh, we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star 1. So we have um, a number of questions from some of our online participants, and I'm going to start with one of their questions. I'm just going to take a few questions here, um, but I see we have a, quite a few of them. Um, so, um, I'm going to start with this one, and this one I'll from Ms. Flynn to start with. Um, my good friend has just been diagnosed with stage 2 bladder cancer. Although I will not be her primary caregiver, I wanted to get some ideas to let her know that I care and I will be there for her when she needs help. Um, could you comment on that one, um, Ms. Flynn, just some thoughts that you might have? Sure, and what a, what a great question. Thank you so much for submitting that. Um, I think one of the best ways to, to approach this is to um, either call your friend um, or to send them an email or a handwritten letter and let them know, one, that you're thinking about them. Um, and not to just kind of check in uh, that one time, but to set um, a calendar or reminder to yourself to keep checking into your friend. Um, they're newly diagnosed with cancer. What their needs are this week might be different in two weeks or three weeks' time. And so um, offering what skills that you have, maybe you um, uh, thrive in social media and could be kind of that spokesperson setting up different websites for either meals or for chores um, or just kind of communicating um, what uh, is happening with your friend's permission um, with their treatment um, so that perhaps they, they, they need a little bit of time to adjust to what's happening um, with the new diagnosis. And this would allow them that time to kind of um, huddle with you and some close loved ones um, without having um, to answer maybe the same question multiple times a day. 
so that's where I would start, which is be reaching out um, to your friend, offering your support, and then continuing to offer your support. Um, sometimes we don't realize, you know, two weeks, three weeks go by, um, and we haven't contacted that person. Um, so I, I like to set reminders with my friends that are caregiving and also with my patients, um, just so I re remind myself to check in with them and continually offer my support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Stevek. Um, uh, my husband will be going for neobladder surgery after his chemotherapy. And could you just comment on that? Uh, I think we've had questions on that before. If you could just comment what that entails. Uh, yeah. Um, boy, that's a th – th there's a lot to talk about with that. Um, I mean, <laughs> the uh, – just generally – after the, in the chemotherapy uh, facilitates and improves the outcomes for people that are that are anticipating surgery to remove the bladder. So it's kind of, um, it, you know, the chemotherapy is given in addition to the planned surgery. The neobladder is one form of um, reconstruction that we can do after removal of the bladder. The the bladder has two functions. It stores urine and it expels urine. So it has both a, a, a storage uh, function and a, a uh, ability to empty. It has a muscle that allows it to empty. We do our best to try to replace that, um, and there's two different approaches. One approach is to have something that is continent where there's no leakage. Another approach is something that's incontinent where, th where there is leakage. There's pluses and minuses to those. Neobladder is a form of a continent um, reconstruction where the a new bladder is made on the inside of the body using intestine, and it's designed to have capacity of the regular bladder. Um, the it doesn't have the function in terms of expelling the urine, but fortunately, you're able to generate enough pressure with your abdominal muscles that you can expel the urine with the neobladder. So that is a, a, a a very good um, and, and a very popular approach to removing to, to managing the the urine once the bladder is removed. It's not the best option for everybody. There are lots of, of subtleties and pluses and minuses, but it is a good option for some patients. Well, excellent. Thank you for explaining that so clearly because I, I think that is a question that um, we've been sometimes asked after a program. So terrific that you able to address it during the program itself. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. They've been actually superb. They can't hear us all applauding them, but they've been wonderful, and they've really given us all so much to think about, so much information. And um, as I want to wrap up the program today, I want to remind everyone of all the services that are available to you from the Product Cancer Advocacy Network and from Cancer Care. And I think has been said by a number of our speakers, we don't want any one of you to leave this program feeling that you are alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. And there are so many organizations out there to help you. Um, today's program, the primary organizations, nonprofits that we've been talking about are both Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care. I also want to put a plug in for your healthcare team. So Whatever your concern is, and I know many of you on the call today have financial concerns, you, it is okay to ask your doctor that, let your doctor know you're having financial issues. 
because they're on your team, on the team at the hospital that you're going to, there are people, financial navigators, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, people in different roles who can perhaps assist you. You may not know all the resources that are out there, but if you don't ask, in one of our programs, please, the, the physicians have often said, please ask us, tell us what you need. So often it's the caregiver who will identify an issue and please do identify that issue with your healthcare team. So if you have a question after today's call, and even, even if you asked the question or didn't get to ask your question, go back to your healthcare team and ask the question. You also know that you do all like to do independent research yourselves before you ask a question, just so you feel perhaps more confident, more informed when you ask a question. So we do, in this particular program, because we're working so closely with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, they have a great website, and you can access their information and get lots of information from them. We also do recommend the National Cancer Institute and, of course, the American Cancer Society as well. All of these are organizations that have tremendous information on, on bladder cancer. Now, as we conclude the t program today, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all for being on this program today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.